I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Welcome to The Connection. Psychiatrist James Gordon knows trauma up close. For decades, he's been working with combatants and civilians in war-torn regions of the world, with survivors of mass shootings, with victims of natural disasters, of hate crimes and domestic violence, as they struggle with the enormity of their loss, their anger, and their grief. He says a trauma is a part of life, something all of us will experience in one form or another. His latest book is The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. Back in 1991, Dr. Gordon founded the Center for Mind-Body Medicine using guided imagery, storytelling, meditation, ritual, and the creative arts to help heal the wounds of trauma. He said that trauma makes us feel isolated, and it shuts down the parts of the brain that helps us connect with others. We asked him to join us today on The Connection to talk about trauma and healing. Trauma is a Greek word that means wound or injury. And psychological trauma is uh, expected for just about everybody who is involved in a war. I don't know anybody who has come back from combat, for example, who hasn't had at least some symptoms of trauma, of post-traumatic stress. Not that they have the diagnosis, the full-blown picture of post-traumatic stress disorder, but they may be more anxious or more irritable or have difficulty sleeping or or be emotionally withdrawn or emotionally volatile. That's expected for combatants. And and also that's what happens to civilians in the midst of war. And I've seen this in in the Balkans, in the Middle East, in Africa, and, and now in Ukraine, where I've been going since the war began there in 2022. In fact, you have written that most of us will experience some kind of trauma in our lifetime. Should we think of trauma as something that is part of life? Well, it's important to understand that this doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. I mean, you may be disturbed, distressed, but it doesn't mean you have a psychological disorder because trauma is going to come. And I think it's important to add here that trauma is going to come to all of us at some point in our lives, if not early in life, because we're living in poverty or in the midst of violence or we have a congenital abnormality. Then a little later, as we lose important people or have major disappointments or divorces, and if not then, then trauma is almost certainly going to come as we grow old and feel physically frail and lose people and face death. So trauma is a part of life. And I think it's important for us to understand that. I think we get into trouble if we feel, oh, we should be able to handle everything. This is sometimes the American way. We have to tough it out and be strong all the time. Yes, we do have to be strong at times, but we also have to acknowledge that vulnerability that all of us have to being traumatized. In fact, you've written that trauma really injures our our mind, our body, our spirit. It's it's sort of a whole person experience. Is that helpful for us to, to understand what trauma is? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a very good point that you're making because one of the basic principles of modern physiology and certainly of the work we do at the Center for Mind Body Medicine is that there is a complete interconnection between our thoughts and feelings and our social relations and what happens in every organ and every cell of our body. So when physical trauma comes, it affects us psychologically. When emotional trauma comes, even if we're not physically wounded in a combat situation, but we've seen terrible things, it will affect our body. And there are two basic biological responses that that follow 
when we're dealing with a traumatic situation. And I can describe those if you'd like. I would like. Yes, please. Go ahead. Well, uh, these are both survival responses. These are not pathological responses. They're responses to a threat, and they're built into all vertebrates, all animals with backbones. And the first is one that, that probably our listeners, and I'm sure you are familiar with, the fight-or-flight response. Sure. Uh, if you think about the sort of graphic example of a fight-or-flight response, if anybody looks at one of the, the, the nature channels and a film of antelope, say, on the on the Serengeti Plain, they're at a watering hole, and a lion comes, and boom, the antelope is off and running. Now, an antelope doesn't have a very big brain, hmm. but it's enough of a brain to understand and enough genetic programming to understand you don't fight a lion, so you go into flight. And what happens? Heart rate is up, uh, respiratory rate is up, blood pressure is up, the big muscles in the body are tense for running. That's fight or fright. With the antelope, if you look at those films, three minutes after the antelope has escaped, she is happily grazing. <laughs> as Fighter if it never happened. Come, done its job, and gone. The problem comes, and post-traumatic stress comes, when fight or flight is prolonged, and we stay in that state of hypervigilance, of agitation, of tense muscles and eyes big looking around, watching for some other threat. That's a symptom of post-traumatic stress. When, when that fight or flight reaction persists after the threat is over, or indeed, as is the case right now in Gaza and to some degree in Israel as well, when the threat is still there. And I've been talking with both our Israeli teams and our team in Gaza, and everybody is in fight or flight, more or less. Yeah, because it's under a constant either bombardment or threat. Help us understand yeah. there's fight, there's flight, and there's also freeze. What is freeze? Exactly. It's a survival response. It's a last-ditch survival response. I used to live in the country, and I had cats. And my cats used to love, especially a couple of them, love to catch mice, and they would bring the mice back to show to show them to me. Now, sometimes the mouse would be dead, but sometimes the cat would get bored with the mouse and they'd just put the mouse down on the ground and the mouse would shake herself off and run off to the mouse hole. She was in a freeze response. The body was limp. The mouse wasn't feeling much of anything. And then when the opportunity came, the survival response disappeared and she was able to run away. During an overwhelming threat, which is what's happening during a war, often the freeze response comes in. When you can't flee, you can't fight, you just shut down to protect yourself. And in addition to the kind of physical shutdown of the body getting slumped over or getting tense, we put out endorphins and we numb ourselves to the pain. Once again, that's a re survival response in the moment, but if it continues, what we see is people who are emotionally shut down, physically tense, socially withdrawn. And that's another set of symptoms of post-traumatic stress. You're describing a kind of emotional numbness in the face of trauma. And it seems during trauma, what one needs is connection. And yet that makes connection very difficult. That's right. That's very important because connection is actually one of the most important factors in recovering from trauma. Having a sense of 
that you're not in it so alone, but the freeze response makes you feel like you're you're all by yourself. So it's very important to provide a supportive group for people to help them recover from trauma. It's interesting to look at fight, flight, and freeze when it comes to animals who seem to be able to shake things off and go back to their life. Is there something unique about humans that we hold on to either the emotions or the experiences? It's hard for us to let them go. Well, you can see some of this in animals, for example, that have been abused. They do hold on to some of that fearfulness. But with humans, it's often much more pronounced. And it, it we have we have big brains and we right. think about things. And not only do we hold on to these reactions physiologically, but we also hold on to the memories and the memories of what happened. So for example, if we were attacked on a dark street, often people will fear walking on a dark street. And they'll be having, in addition to that, They'll be having flashbacks of, oh, my God, that, that happened to me, and it's like it's happening again. Or they may be having nightmares. So it's our capacity for thinking and imagination that makes these sort of the recurrence of these events more vivid and more likely to happen. You have talked about, written about epigenetics and, and the fact that, I guess, unresolved trauma can actually be passed down from one generation to the next, even looking at Holocaust survivors and how the, the horror, the trauma of the Holocaust gets passed down to, to grandchildren. How does that work? Well, this is, this is recent research, really, of the last 15, 20 years max, is that we've, we've learned that there are things called epigenetic changes. Epi is a Greek prefix. It means above. So these are changes that happen in the chromosomes above the genes, but that affect the way the genes express themselves, the way the genes work in our bodies. So for example, with severe trauma, we may there may be changes in the chromosomes that affect genes that make it easier or harder to deal with stress. The research that's been done both on animals and also remarkable research by Rachel Yehuda that's been done on Holocaust survivors is that those changes, those epigenetic changes, not only persist, for example, and in somebody who's been abused as a child, they persist into adulthood, but those changes also can be transmitted from one generation to the next to the next. Hmm. So you see those epigenetic changes in the chromosomes of the children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, even if those children and grandchildren did not have the social influence of the grandparents. That is, if they were separated for whatever reason at birth and grew up elsewhere. So there are the same biological changes and the same changes in behavior are passed on from one generation to the next to the next. It has a, a kind of biblical feeling of the in this case, it's not the sins of the parents, but it's the trauma of the parents being passed on from generation to generation. I mean, that that's so important. Which is one of the reasons why it makes it so important for us to deal with trauma as quickly and as best we can after it happens. One of the reasons we do our work in the middle of wars and don't wait till the war is over. 
Well, I, I'm glad you said that. I do want to get to that. I just want to do a quick follow-up because I'm also thinking of some of the high-violence neighborhoods in this country. I'm thinking of Philadelphia as well, where children are growing up in neighborhoods where they hear gunfire every night, the way children in other countries are involved in or in the midst of war and hear guns and bombs every night. Yes. I, I, I think it's important for everyone to understand that what children here in neighborhoods that are plagued by poverty and violence go through is is true. And children are especially vulnerable because their brains are developing so quickly that that is very, very serious kind of trauma. And unaddressed, it will likely persist into adulthood. So it's really important. Well, obviously, it's important to address the factors that create that trauma, sure. the poverty and the violence. But it's also when, when that's there, uh, or in fact, the uh, abuse that may happen in a family, it needs to be addressed as directly as possible. And those children need to learn the kinds of techniques of self-awareness and self-care that can help us recover from trauma and even move beyond the trauma and recover and discover a new kind of wholeness and a new kind of strength. That's psychiatrist James Gordon. We're talking about healing from trauma. More after a short break. This is The Connection here on WHYY. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. I'm Marty Moscoane. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY about how trauma affects the mind, body, and spirit. Our guest, psychiatrist James Gordon, has spent his career working in distressed and war-torn parts of the world, helping traumatized individuals recover and heal. He says that trauma is a natural reaction to a threat. The trouble starts when the threat is ongoing and the trauma is unresolved. His most recent book is The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. The organization he founded more than 30 years ago is the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. I know you went to Bosnia. I think this was the late 1990s after the war there, which killed something like 200,000 people. There were rape camps. I mean, just unspeakable violence. And what you found was how trauma had affected Bosnians. There was an increase in drugs and alcohol, in domestic violence, and things like even heart disease and cancer. Can you help us understand, and perhaps you already did, talking about epigenetics, but how how that showed up that way? Well, yeah, it was very powerful and very disturbing to see. So, for example, men who had been through the war Either they were combatants or or just civilians who were so scared and so frustrated because they couldn't do more. They continued to be in a in a state of hyperarousal, that fight or flight state. Often enough, they had symptoms of freezing, and often they were kind of socially less connected. And after the war, they they began to try to deal with their symptoms often by self medicating. Everybody, I would go into a restaurant or bar in Sarajevo a year after the war, and everybody was smoking. And the level of alcoholism was off the charts. As best they could tell, it was three or four times higher than it was before the war. And that's because 
the men in particular, sometimes the women too, but the men in particular were self-medicating. So they were drinking, they were feeling kind of out of control. They would go home and they would take out their frustrations on their wives mm -hmm. often enough. And then the wives being abused and battered by the men often would take out the frustration on the kids and the kids themselves were violent with each other. And that's the kind of picture that one can see uh, after combat. We've seen this also with, it's not restricted to Bosnia, we've seen it often with uh, American soldiers coming back from combat, that they're in this state and it tends to infect and affect the whole family. We, we've all seen or heard interviews with Israelis and, and Palestinians about what they have lost and seen in the last two weeks. Their suffering is really palpable. How important is it for someone to tell their story and even to tell it on television to probably millions of people who are you know, sitting in their kitchens or living rooms miles and miles away? Well, it's very important to tell the story, to share the experience. We were just on the on a call this morning with our, uh, our the leader of our Palestinian program, the leader of our program in Gaza. And he is so important for him to talk about the friends of his who've already died, hmm. the fear he has for his children and grandchildren, the, the sense of, you know, frustration and anger and sometimes hopelessness that he gets. And it was important for him to be able to to let go and, and to and, and to cry and to be with us and to have a safe place to do it. And the same thing is true. In Israel, our teams are coming together. There is a sense of relief from sharing, a sense of being able to bring out what's been you know jammed up inside and to have other people who understand. And also then to hear from other people that they've had similar experiences, that, that you're not alone. And I, we all appreciate what, what the work that, that your organization and your people are doing. But I wonder, too, when suffering is compounded by politics, when there are conflicting views about what has happened, when there's misinformation, when there's disinformation, historic hatreds and animosities, how does that make coping with trauma even harder? You know, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, so I, I've been in Ukraine five times in the last 18 months, and there is a totally different view of the world that the Ukrainians have and the Russian invaders have. Totally different view of the world in Gaza and in Israel. And each viewpoint tends to be self-reinforcing. But in groups where people start coming together and where they start trying to get to the truth of how they're, what they're actually feeling, and as they come to know each other, some of the fixed ideas begin to fall away. I remember working in Gaza 20 years ago. There was a group that I was, this is a group purely of Palestinians in Gaza. And there were, many of them were the leaders in health, public health, mental health. And there was also a guy there who was, who was a nurse. And he was very, very angry. And in the group, as people began to get to know each other and as they began to let down their defenses a little bit with each other and be a little more authentic, um, they came to understand each other. And this guy, and I remember this so well, he's, he, it's like he's one of those people who's like a cartoon character with the steam coming out of his ears. Hmm. But on the third or fourth day of our group, he looked across at a guy who was a very important person in healthcare in Gaza. 
And he said, I've seen you on the TV and I've heard you on the radio and you, I thought you were the most arrogant, and I'll spare the profanity, which was translated from the Arabic for me when I was there. He said, I thought you were the most arrogant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I've been sitting with you here for four days and actually you're, you're kind of okay. Mm. <laughs> you're not so bad, which leads me to think that maybe all my ideas about Israelis are not completely true. That maybe I have some, now that capacity, this was an intelligent, sensitive man. That's the capacity that begins to come out of these groups as people get to, because we're all different. We all have preconceptions about each other, whether we're all Palestinians or Israelis or Americans or whatever we are. All of us get stuck in our ways of looking at the world. And if we're gonna have peace, We've got to start seeing the world from other people's points of view. You quote uh, Viktor Frankl in, in your book, The Transformation. He, of course, survived Auschwitz. He wrote a very famous memoir, Man's Search for Meaning. He said many things about Auschwitz and about himself and about suffering. But, but one that you quote, and I think many other people have quoted as well, is, is suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning. And looking at Auschwitz, this death camp, um, how was he, Viktor Frankl, able to find meaning in a death camp? Well, Victor, Victor Frankl and, and his book, Man's Search for Meaning, was very important to me uh, when I first read it 60 years ago, or more than 60 years ago. And, and what he said and what he did, what he experienced, is he found meaning. He found meaning, first of all, even in, in Auschwitz. He found meaning in understanding the situation. He was a psychiatrist. And he found meaning in being able to, sh to share with other people, to give to them, to express love, even in the midst of such horrors. I, I believe that we are capable of that. And what happens with trauma is that as we experience our own suffering, it allows us, it catalyzes that process of becoming more sensitive to other people and the suffering of other people. And this is one of the characteristics of what we now call post-traumatic growth. It, what comes out of us is this kind of sense of a, a search for an appreciation of purpose and meaning, and a sense that that purpose and meaning has to do with caring for other people. This is potentially the process of growth that trauma can open us mm. up to. Trauma breaks down our fixed ways of doing things, our ideas, our sense of ourselves. It's terrifying. But in breaking down those old structures, it opens us to a different and potentially a larger, more generous, more compassionate way of looking at ourselves and other people and of acting toward other people. It's a challenge, though, as I'm sure you will, will uh, acknowledge that you have to accept and, and feel the pain that trauma inflicts. You have to acknowledge your own vulnerability. You have to see all your emotions as not the enemy, but a part of who you are. That's really hard to do. It is hard. It's simple, but not easy. <laughs> it's very hard to acknowledge, to accept what has happened to it, to acknowledge it, to feel that pain. That's one of the reasons why it is important for most of us to have some kind of 
psychological support, some kind of social support. I don't necessarily mean a therapist, although mm -hmm. therapists can be very helpful, but having a place where you can share that pain with other people, where, where nobody's going to judge you, where you feel comfortable and safe. So yes, it is difficult, but it's crucial if we're going to move beyond that state of being traumatized. We're really on the road to vulnerability, are we not? <laughs> yeah, well, it can happen. It's really, it's a matter, in a deep sense, it's a matter of accepting being fully human. I think too often, certainly in, in, in the United States, everybody thinks, or just about everybody thinks they have to be perfect. They have to have <laughs> the perfect life. Um, you know, they have to be the one who's showing off for everybody. Well, that's constraining. That's restraining. That's keeping us from experiencing the vulnerability that all of us have. We're all human, and we're all, therefore, vulnerable. I, I know, uh, having read about the Center for Mind-Body Medicine that you founded several decades ago, uh, a lot of the, the focus is on self-care, on group support, on guided imagery, also on deep breathing and something you call shaking and dancing. Take, yes. us, take yeah. us inside the, the body and why shaking and dancing can be, can be therapeutic. The shaking and dancing, the shaking, if you recall that mouse who escaped from the cat, she was shaking herself off. She's getting rid of the freeze response and running away. This is a built-in biological restorative mechanism. If we have a minute, I'll tell you a story about working in Haiti after the earthquake. Sure, go ahead. In, in, in Haiti in 2010, there was a terrible earthquake. A couple hundred thousand people were killed. Among them, there were 90 nursing students who were killed when one of the dormitories collapsed. So about a year after the earthquake, we began working right afterwards, but I happened to be doing a workshop for about 100 student nurses um, a year after the earthquake. And I taught them soft belly breathing and helped them relax a little. I told them about fight or flight and freeze. And then I said, okay, we're going we're gonna to do shaking and dancing. Let's all stand up. And so we all stood up and I played this hard driving electronic music. And within two minutes, half of the girls were weeping. Uh, and then as uh, they were standing still, more girls started crying. And then I put on some music. It was Bob Marley's Three Little Birds. And the girls started dancing and they're crying and they're laughing and they're dancing. And afterwards, the girls got up and they said, this is the first time we have cried in the year since the earthquake. We've had to be strong. We've had to be strong for our little brothers and sisters, for our parents, for our grandparents. We're nurses. We have to be strong. And then they said, it's so good to cry, yeah. to have that release. This is yeah. the first time we've allowed ourselves to cry. And then another girl said, this is also the first time we've been laughing because we've had to be so serious. We felt there's so much trauma, so much loss. We had to be serious. And it felt wonderful to laugh as well as cry and to have our emotions come to the surface. And then one girl stood up and she, these are 17, 18, 19 years old. And she wagged her finger at me and she said, and Jim, we love Bob, Bob Morley, but we are <laughs> Haitian girls and we have very good Haitian music. <laughs> so she was back to she being got a teenage you. girl. <laughs> 
And that's psychiatrist James Gordon on healing from trauma and his work with people living in distress in war-torn regions of the world. We'll talk more about the tools and techniques to help recover from trauma after this very short break. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY. Our guest is psychiatrist James Gordon, author of The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. He works with victims of trauma around the world, including here in the United States, helping them heal using tools and techniques he developed as founder of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. Let's get back to our interview. Picking up on that Haitian story, um, Reminds you of something that you, you wrote in your book about how trauma turns our body against us because of things like stress hormones. But this notion of movement and, and shaking is a way, I guess, to sort of befriend our body and all the emotions that it contains. Exactly. It's really important. And, and I just suggest that. To, you know, I suggest shaking and dancing to just about everybody because, you know, the trauma gets stored in the body. Everything that happens to us psychologically affects us physiologically. That's basic principle of modern physiology. We Unfortunately, we don't pay enough attention to it. So doing anything physical can be helpful. A lot of people will say going for a walk or getting on a stationary bike, and you're, you're lowering your level of stress hormones. You're increasing endorphins. You're you know, you know, you're, you're just feeling better. Your body's feeling better and your brain chemistry is functioning better. Those activities are good, but the shaking is a kind of freeing activity. So it's not only good on a physiological level, it brings up emotions and allows the emotions to be expressed instead of being suppressed, where they cause significant damage to our physiology. We know that and we don't we need to pay attention to it. I, I want to ask you about parents and children, and I have found the I'm sure like our listeners have found uh, the stories of parents who have lost their children or their children been taken captive or they've been killed or they've been wounded. And just the, the heartbreak of that because parents feel like their job is to protect their children. And I know you have worked with children as well. Um, there's a wonderful story of, of you working in Ukraine and talking to a little eight-year-old girl. You asked her about what the war was like in Ukraine, and she said it was terrible. And, of course, she's eight, and she you know doesn't have a lot of language yet. And she was able to draw her emotions. And I wonder if you could tell us that story. Yeah, drawing is a wonderful way. And, you know, and anybody who's listening to us can can do this. Draw draw what's going on. It's often a way of expression. It's not just with kids. All of us, it, 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 when we have verbal expression, we may tend to censor. Or it may be hard often to put the trauma into words. But as with that little girl... That little girl, Sophia, in Irpin, where there were massacres at the beginning of the war, yeah. she was able to express it, to put it out there on the page, and then to talk to me. Once she had it out on the page, she was able to talk to me about what had happened and also about her fears that it might happen again. So it's really important to give uh, to give children and, and also adults a variety of ways to express themselves. So it doesn't have to be necessarily in logical, verbal form. It can be through movement or it can be through drawings as well as through words. Let me quote something you also wrote in The Transformation, and this is about hope. 
You said, the hope I encourage in you is not theoretical or abstract or Pollyanna-ish. I know the fruitless protests have followed terrible injuries and disappointments, the frustration and fury of dealing with the unavoidable limitations of loss and death. I know the relentless guilt and shame of actions taken or not taken and love not expressed, which can obliterate present joy and cast an impenetrable shadow over the future. When you talk about hope, especially under such adverse experiences that we've been talking about, what kind of hope well, is that? Hope for what? Well, I, you know, I think you mentioned Viktor Frankl earlier. I did. He's somebody who gives us hope. Somebody, and so one of the reasons at the beginning of Transforming Trauma is I tell sto some stories of people I've worked with who've had horrible childhood trauma, really unrelenting, who have grown into remarkable adults. So I want to say that, that there is hope and there are examples. That's one of the reasons Viktor Frankl's book is so so widely read all these years later, is because he is an example of hope. And we need that. When I was in, at a much lesser level, when I was miserable for a while, when I was in medical school as a young man, and I found a therapist who had also <laughs> turned out also been miserable, who'd become a wonderful psychiatrist and a, a, a incredibly generous man. He gave me a sense that I could come through it. It's one of the reasons we need we need mentors. We need to talk with older people who've been through difficult times, not because they're going to lecture us and you know hector us and push us, but simply because of their example. So I think we need to look for those stories and then. That will encourage us, even in the darkest times, that there may be light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, Viktor Frankl writes, say yes to life in spite of everything. I wrote that down because it, I mean, it made me weep, but it also made me feel hope. Change is always, the nature of life is change. So one of the reasons we use some of these expressive techniques or a number of these expressive techniques is to break up those fixed patterns and those constraints and those ideas that we have, which may have come from our family or may have come from terrible circumstances that, that we can't change. Change is possible. We've learned now in recent years that the brains of adults not only can change the way they function, but you can actually grow new brain cells, even as an adult. 25 years ago, if I'd said that, they would have thrown me out of, hmm. out of, out of my medical school professorship. But now we know it's true. It can happen. And it's called neurogenesis. So I think that we, we need to understand this, that change is possible. We need to look for examples and look for tools and techniques that facilitate that change. And that's what, that's what my work and the work of the Center for Mind-Body Medicine and, and the message of transforming trauma is is that there are techniques that we any of us can learn and use. It's not, it's not so complicated. It's not so easy, but it is possible for everyone. Dr. Gordon, I'm going to quote you again. <laughs> Hope your ears are burning. Uh, you again wrote in this book, uh, The Transformation, gratitude requires a shift in attitude. It sometimes happens in the midst of trauma or just, just after it's over. A burst of appreciation for being alive, for having survived. It's certainly worth remembering a moment like this, savoring it, keeping it as a touchstone. But if we're 
to move among trauma's contending claims of fear and grief, anger, agitation, guilt, and shame to live with gratitude, we must cultivate and tend to it. So the gratitude is important, but you have to work at it. You know, meditation, uh, the different kinds of meditations that we teach and that anybody may be using, they open the door to gratitude because meditation is is basically... It's moment-to-moment awareness. And as you become aware of something, appreciation is very closely allied with awareness. And gratitude naturally arises from appreciation. This morning, a friend of mine called called my attention to to the light falling on the the leaves of a a tree outside the house. And it was the, the, the changing colors of the leaves. And so my awareness of that and my taking a moment to enjoy it, naturally the gratitude started to arise. Oh, what an opportunity. Hmm. I may have a zillion things to do today, but for this moment I can really appreciate and be grateful for this beautiful manifestation of nature and of the changing seasons. It's very simple. We just need to take a moment to appreciate and then gratitude can become more and more a part of our lives. And the more the more grateful we are, the more the more relaxed we are, the more energized we are, and the more our mood improves. It's very simple. How important is forgiveness when it comes to dealing with trauma? Well, forgiveness is, is really very beautiful and very important. And forgiveness can begin to arise naturally out of gratitude as you're grateful for each moment you can that kind of opens the door to forgiveness but forgiveness is not easy no and we use it in our work with people who've been traumatized by wars or other situations but we don't force it i remember in kosovo after the war uh, i was leading a group and uh, we did a forgiveness meditation and which involves uh, uh, using the imagination to forgive someone who's hurt you, then asking forgiveness from someone you've hurt. And finally, and often most difficult, is forgiving yourself. And I did a forgiveness meditation in this group of people we were training in post-war Kosovo. And this guy finished the meditation and he said, well, he said, I am certainly not gonna forgive the man who shot and killed my brother but I'm not going to spend the rest of my life obsessing about this. Wow. And I said, fantastic. That's the beginning. That's the because he was coming into the moment. He was grateful for the moment and it put his rage, understandable rage in a bit of perspective, but you don't force it on anyone. I'm not going to say Israelis forgive the Palestinians, Palestinians forgive the Israelis. No, if it comes, it comes. It's beautiful, and it, but it often takes time and we need to be patient with ourselves. In fact, we need to forgive ourselves for not being able to forgive, if you follow what I'm saying. I totally follow what you're saying. And I have a final question for you having to do with justice and and how important justice is to coping with grief. Ah, what Hmm. a question. That's a a very tough one. Uh, Justice may or may not come. Right. I think that is the reality. For many people, it's very important um I, i've worked a fair amount with people whose children have been killed in uh in school shootings here in the united states there's no justice really that will sa- that will satisfy them 
Um, yes, people clamor sometimes if, if some of those shooters, most of those shooters inflict justice on themselves. They kill themselves because they're essentially not only homicidal, but they're suicidal, those young men who do those killings. And some parents feel that they get some measure of justice if the if the person is is executed or some measure of justice, maybe if they're in prison life without parole. But at times, that doesn't satisfy either. I think that we have to come to some kind of place of peace within ourselves. Where Aboriginal people, traditional tribal people, often have rituals that where they are more easily able to establish justice. So for example, uh, I was in Mozambique after they had a series of wars there. And there were rituals. I said, how come people aren't killing each other? And they said, well, we have these rituals. If you come and you ask for forgiveness from the person you have killed or the person you have harmed, and you bring gifts to the family and your forgiveness is absolutely sincere, then they feel that justice has been done. We don't have those rituals. We have something called restorative justice, which is just coming into use here where something like that happens in a modern context, that seems to be far more satisfying than seeing somebody executed or seeing them in, in prison for life. And sometimes those things happen, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm against the death penalty, but I'm not against imprisoning people for life without, without parole if they've committed the most heinous crimes. But that's not, doesn't always satisfy, nor does the death penalty always satisfy people. I think we have to come to some kind of place of peace within ourselves, regardless of what kind of punishment is meted out. Well, Dr. James Gordon, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection, giving us a lot to, to talk about and a lot to think about. And, and thank you for your work as well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for this conversation. I really appreciated it, Marty. Me too. I spoke with Dr. Gordon yesterday. His organization, founded in 1991, is a center for mind-body medicine, and his latest book is titled The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. For more information about The Connection, check out our website, whyy.org slash The Connection. You can follow us on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Charlie Kyer, our engineer today, Debbie Builder and Paige Murray-Bessler produce The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoane. Thank you so much for listening.